0: You're at the right address today. You're at the right place today. We are going to lift high in the name of Jesus. We're going to continue to do that, with, which we've already been doing. We're going to do it as we open God's word on this Daylight Saving Day. They call it Daylight Saving. I make it sound all good about it, right? It's like sleep losing, you know. That's not popular, but that's what it is. They call it Sleep Loser's Day. That doesn't have the same ring to it. Daylight Saving. And I was thinking about that. I was like, man. Like, what's, what's the big deal? Apparently, I don't know if you know this, that Benjamin Franklin thought up this idea in the 1700s. You guys heard about that? It's a bad idea, man. And so uh, they kicked it around for a while, and then apparently somewhere in Europe, I, I had conflicting accounts on the Internet, and one of those is probably true, maybe. Um, somewhere in Europe, Germany or Great Britain, uh, started doing daylight savings. And, uh, you know, I was thinking about it. I was like, you know, what, what really are the pros and cons of daylight savings? And um, because you know what? You know what? Fall back is nice. If we could just keep doing those, like, you know what I mean? Like, we'll just be living during the nighttime, right? But the spring forward is where, it, you know, just gets us. Um, so we get more daylight, all right? That's, that's cool. Um, but you know what? One of the reasons they initially started was to conserve energy. More daylight hours, less electricity being used. But they actually find out it's done, it's done the opposite because people use their air conditioners more. So go, go figure. So it's, it's not all good. It's been some bad. It's, but also a good thing is apparently crime is, decre- is decreased dur- during daylight saving time, um, especially burglaries and robberies because, I guess, there's less, less cover of darkness and people are less inclined to, to rob. So that, that's pretty cool. But a bad thing is I was reading that uh, uh, studies have shown, a 2013 study shows that t- it's a 25% higher chance of having a heart attack the day after daylight savings or a stroke or other illness. I guess that's what happens when you miss out on sleep, right? And so, um, yeah, so here we are. Like, take care of yourself today, all right? If you need, you need to go home and get a nap later, we'd rather that than this 25% sort of stuff, all right? Uh, we don't have one-hour energy drinks. I wish we did. Uh, but, but we're here. We're going we're gonna to be opening God's Word. Um, I'm going to be talking about rest today, believe it or not, on daylight savings. So how about that? God's providence for you the end of the day we all need rest um but you know what i mean like we need rest but if, if you're just sleepy that, that's a nap but how many of you guys need rest like you know what i mean like rest rest from your for your soul rest in your mind rest just emotionally like you know you you can sleep eight hours and wake up tired if there's no rest in god you know christian rest like like Taking a nap, that's a godly thing. Some of you just need to take a nap. You know, sometimes you're just so ornery. It's like, hey, you know, be a good Christian, go to sleep today, all right? Uh, but, but, But rest in the scriptures is so much greater. And it's illustrated in a variety of ways. Think about this. Jesus took a nap on a boat in the middle of a storm. Was it just to show us how hard of a sleeper he was? Or is it an image of what God wants to offer us in the midst of the storm? You see, God God wants to offer his people rest. And this is what he's calling us for. He's saying, I want you to have rest. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'm going to stress you out. No. He says, I'm going to give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Because my yoke is easy my burden is light. And you will find rest for your souls. Jesus offers us rest. And today, I want you to leave today being able to rest assured. Rest assured in Jesus. Is this same kind of Christian hope that allows Paul to say this. He says, we do not lose heart. 2 Corinthians 4. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. This is a man who understands God's rest. He says, externally, I'm wasting away. And a lot of us feel that. A lot of us feel that. My left knee hurts in the mornings now. I get up, I'm just like, I got to see what's wrong. And I know the doctor's going to tell me, because you're getting older. There's nothing wrong. The thing's wrong is you, you're wrong. And I was go back and tell him, no, you're wrong, right? I mean, our, our bodies ache, there are our, Outer self is going to be wasting away, but Paul says, as you're externally wasting, you're inwardly being renewed because of God's rest. I love how the scripture takes these these prominent themes and oftentimes how God packages them in real life stories to communicate spiritual truths. So if you want rest today, would you join me in the book of Joshua chapter 21? Only if you want rest. All right, only if you want rest for your soul. Join me in the book of Joshua, chapter 21. We're going to see that when doubt, defeat, and despair wage war in your soul, you can rest assured in Jesus. All right, you can rest assured. Joshua chapter 21, that's the sixth book of the Bible Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua. And then go all the way to chapter 21. If you don't own a Bible and there is one there in the the chair in front of you, please take that one home and consider it your own. We want you to have it. We want you to have God's word in your hand. I'm going to be moving around some in this this sermon today. I have a a couple of different passages we're going to take a look at, Um, but we're going to start here in chapter 21. I'm preaching Joshua chapters 10 through 21 today. You guys are like, you know, we need some more daylight savings for this one, right? Um, Now, I'll go through it quickly. A lot of it is land divisions. But what it is is it's a testimony of how God has given the land that He promised, or as we know it, the Promised Land, to His people, and divides it among the twelve tribes of Israel. Actually, eleven tribes. The tribe of Levi gets no land because it says God is their inheritance, which is pretty cool, ain't that? And then we come to chapter twenty-one. At the end of all their military campaigns, at the end of all their land divisions, we come to verse forty-three. And this is what God says. Would you stand to your feet if you're able to, uh, as we read God's word, I want us to hear what it says, Joshua 21, verses 43 through 45. I want you to hear and see what God tells his people through his word in Joshua. Verse 43, thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them what? He gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them. For the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Let's read verse 45 together with passion and conviction like you believe it. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed All came to pass. Let's read that again. Verse 45, not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All had come to pass. Amen. You may be seated. It's a small passage there, but man, it's it's filled with such hope. It isn't a simple, hey, everything that was said was going to happen, happened. Peace. But, but there you see a very God-centered focus in what took place when the people of God entered the land of Israel. And it says there in verse 43, the Lord gave to Israel all the land. God gave it to them. They, they didn't earn it. They didn't deserve it. But God gave it to them. How did he give it to them? Well, let's go to Joshua chapter 10, all right? I'm going to spend a little bit of time here. We're going to look at some daylight savings in Joshua chapter 10, just briefly. Last week, I talked about in chapter 9 how God's people made an ill-advised covenant with the people of a land called Gibeon. And that covenant was, hey, you got our back, we got your back, and now Gibeon's in trouble, and the commitment they made to them, even though they shouldn't have made it, the commitment they made was now being tested. And in Joshua chapter 10, we find that five neighboring armies go to attack the Gibeonites. Look at verse 5 of Joshua 10. It says, then the five kings of the Amorites. Can you say Amorites? That's a significant detail we'll look at in a moment. The kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, Lachish, Eglon, they all gathered forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon. Now the test. And Joshua goes on. He asks the Lord, should we go? And in verse 8, the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Again, who gave them? God gave their enemies into their hands. And verse 9, so Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel. Who's fighting here? It's the Lord. He threw them into a panic, the, the other army. And then it says, They struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Horon and struck them as far as Azekah and Machedah. And in verse 11, As they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Horon, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. Who did the fighting? Verse 12, at that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over the sons to the sons of Israel. And this is what Joshua said in the sight of Israel. He said, son, stand still at Gibeon. And the moon in the valley of Aijalon. And the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of man. For the Lord, who? What did he do? The Lord fought for Israel we see in chapter 10 that as Israel fights against these five kings and their militaries ultimately it's God who fought for them because God is powerful God is able to offer them rest and he does so through his mighty hand Joshua needs more daylight he's in foreign territory he doesn't know the land the promised land they spied it out a couple times He doesn't know the nooks and crannies. He needed daylight. He prays for daylight. God offers daylight somehow, and he did the first daylight savings. Right there, that was it. That was it. He saved the daylight for them to fight their enemies. God has the power not just to offer rest, but to deliver on the promise of rest. You know, a lingering question that's been going through the book of Joshua as we've unpacked it together, and I want to take a moment to unpack it for you, is, is the, the, mor- the moral question. And I don't know if you guys have wondered this. Sometimes when we read the Scripture, we don't ask these kinds of questions, but then all of a sudden we're like, wait a minute, when someone asks us, well, does, doesn't your God tell people to kill other nations? And so we wonder, okay, God tells them, I'm giving you this promised land, but by the way, other people live there. And you've got to take it, and actually... In our own nation, there was an ill-advised application of this truth and people came from Europe and came to this country and saying this is our new promised land, let's slaughter the Indian tribes because this is what God is giving us the new Israel and that, that's bad theology. That, that's not, that's not what this is saying. And I mentioned that it's important to understand the context of this and then understand the reason why God did this. And this is unique to this circumstance and cannot be applied after this. All right? Otherwise, we can, we can make the Bible say whatever we want it to say. The details are important in it, that they're called the Amorites. I mentioned that we saw that in verse five, and we saw it again later in this passage, because in Genesis chapter 15, verse 16, and we don't have time to turn there, but, but God says this. He says, And they shall come back, this is talking about the people of Israel, once they're in slavery in Egypt, they shall come back to the land in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. See, what, what it is is this. God tells Abraham, he says, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. But by the way, your people, your descendants, will end up in Egypt as slaves before I bring them back to the land that I gave you. But I'll bring them back at, in the fourth generation at the right time because when I bring them back, the iniquity of the Amorites will be complete. And you're like, what, what does that mean? What it means is this. The, the people who lived in the, in the land of Canaan... In the promised land, we're a wicked people. And, and God uh, off, uh, gives us warnings. He, he gives us warnings about judgments that's to come. Even people who don't know God personally, we know that the heavens declare His glory, and at the very least, they ought to move our hearts to say, God, show me who you are. But the people of Canaan persisted in their iniquities until the cup ran and began to overflow and God tells Abraham it's gonna take about 400 years that they're gonna walk in great rebellion and resist my word shown in creation they will not pursue me they will not repent and then I need to execute judgment on their wickedness we, we want a God of mercy but we must understand he's also a God of justice because a good judge offers justice to the guilty and the people of Canaan the Amorites were guilty and so what became the promise or the fulfillment of a promise of land to Israel became the fulfillment of judgment to the Canaanites God is sovereign and for this reason God sends his people into Canaan saying go in there and be the instruments of my judgment against these wicked people their time is run out The cup has overflowed, and now it's time for the judgment of God. We've got to understand that the God of the Old Testament is no different than the God of the New Testament. A lot of times we we read these passages and say, well, but the God of the New Testament is so much kinder than that. The God of the New Testament is just as just as he was in the Old, because he's the same God. And in fact, God still has enemies, and his patience is on display. And the enemies of God are all who have not put their faith in Jesus. Because by not putting our faith in Jesus, we're saying, God, I just don't need you. God's like, you don't need me? Then you're my enemy. My enemy. We're hostile to God. In fact, the Bible says from our birth, we are enemies of God. Hostile toward him. And we are deserving then of his judgment, his wrath. The Bible shows us even in the New Testament, how God's wrath has been poured out and will be poured out. The beautiful news is that God's wrath has been poured out on Jesus. So when you believe in him, you don't have to then suffer that same wrath. Jesus took it already. See, your your cup is full, family, if you don't know Jesus today. And judgment upon you and in your life will happen. And it's called death. Death happens because sin happens. And this physical death, if you don't know Jesus, will be followed by an eternal death in hell where all you will experience is the wrath of God over you. They're the same God in the days of Joshua as they are in our days here. And God used Israel to be the instrument of his justice. I plead with you today, if you don't know this God, if you don't know his mercy, come to know him. You see, Ezekiel chapter 33, I think it's verse 11, says that God takes no delight in the destruction of the wicked. God's not there waiting excitedly for that cup to fill up, be like, eh, now's my turn. But God sends his prophets, his messengers, his preachers, saying, turn away from your sin and turn to this God who's merciful who wants to have a relationship with you, turn away from your wickedness and come to him. He's appealing to you through me. This is not Eric talking. This is God saying, my justice will remain. My wrath will be poured out. Will you be the one to receive it or will you trust in my son who received it for you? This is the offer. The Amorite sin was full. The book of Deuteronomy and Leviticus talk about their abominable practices. The People of Canaan practiced child sacrifice to appease their gods. They they had their children walk through fire. And then then in the book of Leviticus, Moses says, God tells Moses, And you shall not walk in the customs of the nations that I'm driving out before you. For they did all these things, and therefore I detested them. Well, what things? He lists out in chapter 20 of Leviticus, child sacrifice. They were those who went to spiritists and practiced witchcraft. There was rampant sexual immorality where they praised adultery, incest, homosexuality, and bestiality. The practice of these things. And God says, that's not my design. God goes on to say that that these people worshipped fake gods and turned away from the one true God. So the cup is full. But you know what's fascinating to me? is that even still, as God is executing judgment on these people through his own people, he shows mercy. Because we saw in chapter 2 a woman who was a prostitute, who says, I've heard about your God, and I, I don't want to go down like the rest of the people in this city I live in. What do I got to do? She turns to the God of Israel. So even in his judgment, God is offering mercy Family, God has offered mercy to us. We're no different than the Amorites. We're no different than these Canaanites. We know the thoughts in our minds, things in our hearts. We know how we rebelled from God and God is just pleading for us to turn away and to turn to Him. We see in chapter 21, the Lord gave Israel the land and He swore to their fathers that He'd do it to offer judgment on one and fulfill a promise to another because he's a faithful God. And by doing so, God shows us he could offer you and me rest, spiritually speaking. Look what he says here. Joshua 21, we're back there in verse 44. And the Lord gave them rest on every side just as he had sworn to their fathers Not one of their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All had come to pass. God says he gave them rest. This is what we're looking for today, family. We see that we serve a God who's able to deliver on it. How do we see God, how do we see his rest? Well, we see here that that God fulfilled all his good promises. Are you thankful we serve a promise-keeping God? Yeah, Yeah, I'm thankful for that. In fact, uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, all the promises of God find their yes and amen in who? Jesus. And see, what, what we're seeing here is we read the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, and so forth. We see that all the promises that God puts out there somehow, point to Jesus. So we scroll down the Bible, we see that there is a time and place where on a hill called Golgotha, Jesus was the one who fulfilled the promises of God. He fulfilled the past tense. He's fulfilling promises now, and he will fulfill promises yet to be fulfilled. All God's promises find their yes and amen in Jesus, which means so does the promise of rest. They say, well, what does that mean though? Because Joshua in his day, they're in a physical land with a physical people and they find physical rest. How does that find fulfillment now some thousands of years later? I'm glad you asked that question. Psalm 95, the psalmist refers to this giving of rest. And he says to God's people, he says, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts like your forefathers had done and they weren't able to enter rest. That's the people of Moses' generation. They never entered the promised land. They didn't know God's rest. But then in Hebrews chapter 3, the writer to the Hebrews reads Psalm 95 and says, you know, that's fascinating. Because the psalmist says, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts because then you won't enter rest. And the writer to the Hebrews says, he's thinking, if he says today, then the rest that Joshua experienced was only a symbol of a greater rest God offers today. And today is always today. What does this mean? Would you turn your Bibles to the book of Hebrews chapter 3? Hebrews chapter 3, it's on page 1002 in the Blue Bibles. Hebrews chapter 3. I love how the Bible does this. This is what awes me. These, these are uh, some over 40 different authors over a 1,500 year period writing the same story inspired by the Spirit and in unison. We, we couldn't get us all in this room to agree on something in a minute, let alone 1,500 year period. But here we come thousands of years later. We're well not in the thousands from that time, but... Many, many, many years, over a thousand years later, Hebrews chapter 3, we see that the writer to the Hebrews, in, in Hebrews 3, verse 7, quotes Psalm 95, which says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And look down to verse 11, it says, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, those who harden their hearts. And so the writer to the Hebrews says in verse 12, Take care, brothers, lest there be, any of you in, uh, lest there be in any of you an evil unbelieving hearts, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called what? Today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, Let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by what? Faith with those who listened. The writer to the Hebrews is saying this. I'm I'm, going to summarize this. In the days of Joshua God promised rest in the land and defeat of the enemies. And then Joshua tells us, God delivered on that promise. And the writer to the Hebrews is saying, but the promise of rest still remains for all of God's children. And then the question is, what kind of rest is he speaking about? Well, he tells us that this rest in chapter 4, verse 2, ought to be received by faith. What the writer to the Hebrews is telling us is that when we are apart from Jesus and we have not put our faith in him, our life does not know spiritual rest. Some of you are shaking your head because you know what that's been like. You remember the days that you tried and tried and tried to get God to love you. And you kept falling short and feeling like I did never do enough. Until you came to the realization that, yeah, that's the right answer. But God has done enough. You see, spiritual rest finds its origination, its genesis in Jesus. And when you finally say, God, I'm, st- I'm, I'm done trying to do this, God. I'm done trying to earn heaven by being good because I just, I can't let my good outweigh my bad. And I know my bad is just there and it's ever before me. I need a solution and when you finally raise your white flag and you wave that thing around and say, God, I surrender, I need Jesus, I confess my sin, I turn away from it, I need your forgiveness, God says, now enter my rest. It's a beautiful picture. But get this, watch this. The rest is not yet complete because there is yet a land to be promised God's children. There is a rest that awaits us after all this mess on earth. And it's called heaven. It's called eternal life with our heavenly Father. And at that point, finally at that point, you will know rest perfectly. And the writer to the Hebrews says, today if you hear his voice, Come into his rest now and be ready for his rest later. But then there's a warning, he says, in verse 14 of chapter 3. I'm sorry, in verse 13. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Don't let a hard heart prevent you from receiving God's rest. I could do it on my own. I've picked myself up before and dusted myself up. I got this. Just, just another day, God. Let me, let me just linger a little bit more here. God's like, as he tells the psalmist, Psalm 46, cease striving and know that I'm God. Just stop. Stop doing it. Stop letting doubt swirl in your mind. If you've put your faith in Jesus... He's got you. Rest in Him. Stop letting regret weigh you down. If you've repented and turned from your sin, you're forgiven. Rest. If your past keeps showing its ugly head, reminding you of what you once were, but remember, you're a new creation through faith in Jesus. Rest. If tomorrow you're thinking about all that you gotta do, to be the person that you want to be, just rest in God. If maybe some of your old religious backgrounds where you felt that you got to do more, you got to pray so many times a day, you, you had to do these various acts because then God might love you, rest in the finished work of Jesus. I ran a marathon once many years ago. One thing I remember is at the starting line, everybody looks good. Everybody. They got their matching outfits, their shiny shoes, their hair is all done. But about mile 14, it's is, is looking rough. Mile 22, that, that last half mile, you start seeing running forms you've never seen before. People looking jacked up. You know they got Blisters from the the front of their toe to their heel. I mean, you just see it because they're like, you know, just they're just trying to stay off their feet, but they're like, i got to finish, right? I mean, you know what's going on. They're all chafed everywhere. They're just messed up. A lot of us live our lives like this. We, We start off, things are feeling so good. We have our great days, but we start living by our own strength. You might be looking a little more jacked up than you think you do. God sees in your heart. Your outer person, yeah, is wasting away, but what about your inner person? You see, the problem is that we try and we try and we strive. Yes, God wants us to work. He wants us to to live out our faith, right? That's why we read earlier, it's not as a result of works that we're saved, but we're created for good works. But those good works we do are not by our own strength. So you don't need to look all jagged. You don't need to look all like that, like you just ran a marathon. But you could rest. In your God. And you rest every day in Him. You got to get into Word. You got to pray to God. Say, God, I need your rest. I know for me, when I'm tossing and turning in my bed, I know I want to physically rest, but I can't physically rest until I spiritually rest. And I got to get up and pray. And it's when I'm stubborn, because I'm like, Lord, just real quick, let me go to sleep real quick. You know, it's like, God's like, you're not hearing me. You're just not listening. And it's finally, when I humble myself, get up out of bed, pray, I get back in and I fall down asleep. We harden our hearts to God saying, rest. Rest in me for your salvation and rest in me in your Christian life for those of you who know him. Rest. Well, today's Daylight Savings... And it, de- <laughs> Sorry. and it might decrease robbery and crime. But it could do nothing about sickness and death and sin. Daylight savings can be a solution to some problems, but it can't fix the human heart. It can't offer you rest, even in the fall. But one Friday afternoon, in the middle of the day, things became pretty dark. Pretty dark. Because on a cross, a bloody cross, our Savior hung, and darkness covered the land. And on that Saturday, darkness still reigned, and there was no rest. But on Sunday morning, in the daylight, there was savings. In the daylight, there was one who conquered sin, death, and Satan. There was one who who didn't stay in his grave. When the sun rose, the sun rose. And he brought daylight savings so that those who look to him can find rest and live life rest assured. That's our God family. Christian rest is more than a nap, and though sometimes we need those, but we're talking napping on a boat in the middle of the storm when life is cloudy and there is lightning. Are you resting? Can you say my outer self is wasting away, but I'm resting? I, I, I might be struggling in life, but through Jesus, I find rest. Rest. See, the writer to the Hebrews tied a nice bow around this. He says, yeah, they rested in the land. God offered a promise to Joshua as he offers a promise to us. Jesus said before his death, come to me and I'll give you rest. Because he knew what he was about to do. He was about to look at his enemy, not the Amorites, but sin. His enemy called death. His enemy called Satan. And he was going to defeat them all to give us rest. I hope your Bible's open today because that means you want God's rest. My hope and prayer and that this daylight savings, you might remember that Sunday morning when the daylight shone and God brought savings. And that you could rest in this God who's so good to us. When we were yet his enemies, God tells the Israelites, I'm bringing you in this land, but not because of you, but because of my promises. And He's offering you rest, not because of you, but because of His promises, and in that you can rest assured. Father, we come before You, Lord, and we thank You for what You have done through Jesus, Lord. God, we're we're done. We're done trying our own strength, Lord. I confess and just in awe of how I do that, Lord. So often I just I just try to do better and do more and. It's like you're tapping on my shoulder and I just don't hear you, Lord. Thank you for screaming loudly in my ear this week. And God, I pray that through me you're screaming loudly in these ears in this room. God, we've got a message of hope and a God who takes brokenness and brings wholeness because of your own faithfulness. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters today, for all who know your son Jesus, every Christian in this room, that they could rest in the finished work of Jesus. Cease striving, knowing that you're God. And for everyone in this room, Lord, who has yet to put their faith in Jesus, who is trying and doing more and more and more and so frustrated from tripping and falling and getting up and over again and, and find no rest, Lord, I today pray that they might say, God, I need you. Forgive me for my sins. Give me a new life. And Lord, at that point, that woman would know that she is a daughter of you. That man would know he is now a son of you. You adopt them to your family through faith in Jesus. Do it, we pray, O Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.